At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest, the returning guest, and I'm going to say it's the fourth time you've been on. Welcome to the show, Paul Hyatt. Lovely to be here. Thanks very much. You've got a new film. Yes, Peripheral. Peripheral. Do you want to give people a brief synopsis to what Peripheral's all about? Yeah, I mean, with Peripheral, um, the reason I uh, was so drawn to it was that it really is a dark, twisted um, look into what technology can become, but also a real look at what where we are right now. Um, when we, when we made it three years ago, and it was relevant then, even more relevant now. I mean, for me, you know, one of the biggest, scariest things is when uh, corporate entities can control art. That is something that scares me, how... Uh, in the old days, where you got people like Francis Paul Coppola and George Lucas and Brian Harlow making the films exactly how they wanted to make as directors, but now it's like you have streaming sites, finance and stuff, and, and uh, concepts and films are put together by algorithms out to the point of, you know, what's what's the current um, director choice? What's the concept of a movie? The sort of violence. Instead of it all being about what's a really cool story and what, what can we make that's, you know, uh, confrontational and, and cinema, you know, is about, you know, uh, talking about what's going on in society and how we feel and, you know, characters that you relate to. Everything now is kind of like, no, this is made in exactly this box for this um, demographic. And, you know, when you start seeing films made in those ways, it's really scary. I mean, obviously, it touches upon the obsession with celebrity, and um, but for me, it was all about what's happening to the artist's soul, how an artist's soul could be torn away from. Before there. we go into more detail about the whys and the wherefores, so what what actually is the story that, that of peripheral? So basically, um, there's a character called Bobby, and struggling to write a second book. The first book was a huge success. It caused anarchy. It was a real against establishment, but um, but she uh, wrote it on drugs. And it was, uh, you know, uh, 
a work of art she was seen as the new visionary voice of of this generation and now she's off the drugs and she's trying to write a book and she's got a, a publisher who's trying to make her write a book that fits into a particular box uh, for a particular demographic and she's struggling and the publisher says look i'll do you a deal um we're going to give you uh, artificial intelligence editing assistant um, upgrade to your computer. Now, Bobby's a complete technophobe. She likes to just work on um, uh, an old school typewriter. So she's pushed into using all of this technology. And this technology edits her work in real time. So it starts off as a real battle between human artist soul and this computer that's trying to um, edit her work, not just edit it in terms of um, the writing, but the soul of it, the story of it. Everything there is being turned into what the publisher wants, not what Bobby wants. So it starts off as this um, um, battle of wills between her and computer. Then it gets darker and darker where she starts to give in, and it goes into... um, the best way to describe it, uh, I saw it in one of the other reviews, it's like a, uh, a hallucinogenic uh, crystal meth fired up Cronenberg vision. It's all about her descent into the madness of creating art. Have you, come, have you used AI storytelling yourself? I haven't. There was a big presentation at Virtual Can this year um, about the uh, about a mach- uh, AI machinery which can essentially plot and measure the success of a script at script stage using AI. It's crazy. I've read about that. I and... sat through the whole thing, Paul, and I and I do not know how a computer can do anything but reference the past. It can't experience the present, therefore. The new story that's been presented, for better or for worse, you know, it doesn't. It doesn't because it doesn't come out the way you want. It doesn't make it. Doesn't mean it's wrong and therefore it's a work of genius. But the whole point of experiencing any kind of um, of story that you've not heard before, even if the tropes are familiar, even if the cliches are there, the point being is you don't know what's going to happen, and the experience of that is of what what that first time round is a, is all about the present, whereas. A computer doesn't live in a present. It doesn't have an emotion. It doesn't. I remember. I remember one of the first early parts of that program, Humans, on Channel Four, and um, one of the women in it was going on dates with her with her AI robot. And the question was asked, you know, what did you do? Oh, we went to the play. We went to the theatre. We saw this play. And then the woman says, "How did you feel?" And he went, "We went to the theatre and we saw this play." And she went, but how did it make you feel? And the AI obviously doesn't feel anything because that's not what happens. Whereas, um, I mean, I was joking today on Twitter, actually. I mean, it might sound like a crass detail, but, you know, music is a very subjective thing. And if I say to you, this is the most amazing album in the world, you can't turn around to me and go, no, it's not, it's shit. And, well, you could say it, obviously, but it would be meaningless because you thinking it's shit doesn't make it any better or worse for me because... The subjectivity involved is I'm thinking it's great. Um, and that means that I can listen to the Nolan Sisters, followed by Slayer, followed by Marvin Gaye, followed by Sonic Youth, and I can enjoy all four. Absolutely. A, a, a computer can never give a film or writing heart. 
And, you know, you look at, uh, you know, they're talking about AI in uh, hospitals where, you know, you're telling the symptoms and it will go through 100,000 different cases in the, like you say, in the past, and it can work out exactly what's wrong with you. That's fine for technical, but, but when you talk about art and heart, it's only going to make something from, like you say, the past, um, by work that's already been done and, how can it feel? You know, it's like you write something, and especially if you're writing a character that's based kind of on yourself and what you've gone through in the past. How can a computer ever do that? Mm. And 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 it, it, that, that idea of can, how can they make out reminds me of um, my favourite parts of uh, Alien Covenant was all about David's sort of madness through drawing and painting artwork and stuff. You yeah. Know? You know, it's like this idea, you know, because it is, it is, there is a, there is a kind of, um, there's an insecurity which leads to a kind of madness when you make shit, isn't there? You know, because you can never be certain of how it's going to be received, but you can, but you can only be as sure as you can be all at the same time. So it's either, either you never do anything, you never act on it, or you put it all out on the line, don't you? There's no, there's no halfway between the two, is there? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I read a script that had been written by a computer. And it was hilarious. It really was. There was a script, and there was three acts, and it had all the characters. But, you know, how the characters were thinking, and nothing made cohesive sense. But there was a story there. But none of the characters worked at all. They kept doing stuff that wasn't right. And it is. It's that whole thing of how could computer write human emotion. And also about the complexities of the person but also the flaws humans do silly shit all the time and and a computer would just see that as well that person's doing an error where you know you look at some guys who you know lose their minds over a woman and always get themselves in stupid trouble computers go to be like you know none of that makes sense you have to be human to understand why another human does silly stuff what we're talking about is uh, Peripheral, which is your new sci-fi movie, which is out now. How can people see it? Uh, basically, it's going to be on Amazon. Um, it's going to be on Google, Sky, Virgin, all the usual paid-for uh, streaming sites. You, dear boy, are going to do the first five great sci-fis. And for the um, for the purposes of anyone that hasn't heard this before, the format is the same no matter what the subject is. Um, of late, I've had five feminist themes in horror. I've had five great Turkish remake exploitation films. I'm lining up five killer dogs from movies. But today we're going to do five great sci-fis, and the rules are simple. Five movies, which I've got, they're all ready to go. We're going to talk about them in reverse date order, oldest to newest. And we get five minutes per film. So when the dog barks, when pig barks, that's the sign that five minutes are up. Paul, you could hear that fine, couldn't you, at your end? Yes, I could hear the barking, indeed. Clock is ticking, sir. Your first choice is 1982's Blade Runner. What can you tell me that makes you excited about a film like Blade Runner? Uh, Blade Runner is, uh, for me, watching it as a child... Uh, blew me away because watching it as a child and watching it as an adult is two very different things. And I start to look at it now, and you know, I think about all all the um, 
sort of metaphors and you know, Moy Batty's character and all the replicants, it was kind of like slavery. You know, they're, they're sort of slaves trying to fight against their captors. You know, it's like a mutiny and, you know, and also the sort of um, religious tones of uh, Moy Batty, who's, who's almost kind of like, almost like a, 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 a sort of um, deity. And, you know, I watch it now and it's it's so much about, you know, uh, colonialism um, and how the world's, uh, the, the dystopian um, kind of feel to it, the cyberpunk elements. But as a kid, how I watched it, I watched it, uh, you know, I, I just, I didn't see any of that in there, being, you know, a kid who's brought up on sort of trashy horrors and splatter films, all that stuff. And I watched it as a kid, and it it blew me away. I didn't understand it. I didn't really get it. I just watched it as a cool science fiction movie. And it's one of those films over the last, what was it, uh, four, 35-odd years. Every time I've watched it, and I usually watch it every few years, it's, it's the sort of movie that, uh, I feel, I see things in it that I didn't see before. And every viewing has a different kind of uh, subcontextual sort of element there, whether it be like the slavery thing. And funny enough, it was about last year that I watched it and I thought, God, yeah, they're, they're kind of slaves. You know, it's, it's, and I remember watching it a few years before thinking, um, that the replicants had all, they were all kind of like fallen from the heavens, which was, you know, they're almost like fallen angels and they're trying to find a way to extend their immortality, as it were. Um, and I've, I've kind of always feel, you know, a lot of it is an existential kind of take on sort of death and... You know, every time I watch it, I feel I understand mortality more or I understand, you know, a, a different kind of perception of life, death, dying. So it, it talks to me on so many levels. It's a film that I can watch again and again and again and just see so many different things. Well, there's a, there's a book by Ernest Becker called The Denial of Death, which is from 1973. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes, and it's got nothing to do with the film, but it's about the idea that if humans could get over the fact they're going to die, they could they could they could get on with living. It's the fact that we realise we're going to die, which ruin, in theory ruins your life. You know, as a child, you don't even you don't you don't see the end of your life. Yes, but you reach a kind of. 10 or 11, 12, and you begin to understand because maybe you've witnessed somebody die in your family or or whatever, and you begin to understand that this is finite and it's something to be precious about. But so that's that can stop us living. Um, but it also, also I think I think one of the cleverest things about about Blade Runner for me is is that they chose to do it as a kind of hard boiled film noir. Yes, which is which is all which you know. Having just been doing a bit looking into it in terms of Paul Schrader's theory on film noir, which is the base. One of the big rules is it's the how is more important than the what, 
And obviously this film goes through a lot of how and you're left to work out what the what is. Absolutely, absolutely. And it was that sort of hard-boiled, raw detective type of movie the, and the voiceover. I mean, obviously, we, we, we haven't even touched on it, the absolutely beautiful production design, the, um, uh, the, the, the visual style of the movie, all that stuff put aside, you know, it's just fantastic work. It really... You, you, you hear it right as I get it. Oh, is that it? Yes. Um, it was a rather a rather tepid one, but yes, the dog did bark. You're reading a magazine. You come across a full-page nude photo of a girl. Is this testing whether I'm a replicant or a lesbian, Mr. Deckard? Just answer the questions, please. We're going to stay in 1982 and have a look at John Carpenter's The Thing. Where do you start with this? I mean, you, I mean, what 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 excites you about what what's your first memory? Of the thing, if I if when you when you hear that title, what do you first think of? Uh, I, I mean, as soon as I hear his his score, dun, 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 and you see that Arctic, uh, Antarctica, I mean, it absolutely warms my heart. It really does. I mean, that was the film that got me into makeup effects. That was the film that I I suddenly understood. Oh my god, a film could be more than just you know, a killer in the woods chopping up teenagers. I was really into my Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday 13, Chainsaw Massacre, Return of the Dead. I, I was watching all of those and suddenly I watched a thing. And I was like, oh my God, my whole perception of horror changed. Everything about it, the story, the actors, the, the, the character arcs, the decisions they have to make, everything about it, this nihilistic, uh, approach the, the, the nihilistic music, everything about it absolutely shook me to the core. You know, the makeup effects were amazing, but it was one of those things where you were totally with all those, you liked all those characters. There wasn't one character that you disliked. There was no um, women, romance, girls with bikinis. All that was gone. It was just all about these men in this, ordinary men in this extraordinary situation and it felt so real that you actually felt you were there with them it it, it was something that I, I had to watch I think I watched it 10 times in one week you know it it just blew me away I was watching all these uh, at that time I was quite young but it was like oh my god you know these characters are so real you know, it, it was there was no silly humor, there was no splatter. It was just absolutely like terrifying, and 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 the effects at that time were just so, um, you know, revolutionary. They were they were. What techniques or, or or things that were used in that film still are still about to this day? What 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 sort of techniques in that film are still getting used on film sets today? I mean, to be honest with you, it's it's. A lot of that stuff you wouldn't really do. I mean, animatronics now you do. I mean, I'm thinking through all the effects, and like like the the bit where where he's got his hands underneath his skin on either side of the face. You yeah, that's just a prosthetic glued over some hands onto a face. You would totally do it that way. But like you look at the head with the spider legs, that you'd never do that practically now. Um, it, it would be 
you know, so easy to do it in CG. Um, the, 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 the body splitting open and the hands going in, that's still such a cool way to do it. You know, it's like you need a false body that, you know, underneath someone's operating a rig, you've got somebody, a W amputee with arms, goes in and it punches. You know, to do that in CG would be really hard. To get that right would be really hard. Um, and but anything where there's like the big, huge creature coming out, you know, nowadays, really would you use massive practicals like that? You know, I, you know, I, I still know a lot of guys that work makeup effects, and they say, you know, makeup, prosthetic makeups are still going on, and you know, they will when they're applied to the actor and stuff. But the old days of making creep, big creature suits and Massive animatronics and huge rigs and all that kind of going, you know. I don't know anyone that's done a, a picture like that for a while. Although the new Jurassic Park apparently has a lot of practical effects, loads of animatronics, more than any other Jurassic Park film. Excellent. So I'm kind of wondering why why they've gone that route. Whether the director is just really old school, want to see physical dinosaurs. Uh, it's always, it, I mean, it's more fun being a director on the set, having everything practical. But nowadays, you know, you're under such time constraints, you know, just, you know, something, let's just get that element, shoot it green, do it on post. Um, but the thing, you know, I would say 50 that would still be done the same way. <laughs> there we go, there's Pig telling you to be quiet. You the only one who made it? Not the only one. Did you kill it? Where were you, Charles? Thought I saw Blair. I went out after him. Got lost in the storm. Fire's got the temperature up all over the camp. Won't last long, though. Neither will we. Now, moving strictly into what you would... into the king of body horror, David Cronenberg's The Fly from 1986. Yes. Um, the Fly is one of those things where, again, you know, it's, it's a film of... A lot of people talk about it being a metaphor for ageing. But, you know, a lot of people also say it's a metaphor for AIDS. And as a kid, you watch it and it's the most coolest, like, oh, you know, dudes turn into a fly. And, and as you get older, again, it's one of those films you watch years later and see much more in it. And I watch it and, yeah, you understand that it's, it, it is something about ageing. It, it's that sort of... You know, uh, your skin going, your body dying, you know, everything that you kind of want to be, you want to be stronger, you want to be this, you want to be that, but you can't get away from the fact that you're going to get old and you're going to die. That's kind of like, did you ever see it as a metaphor for ageing or more for disease? Well, to be honest with you, um, I was just trying to think, what was the purpose of the teleportation pods? It was to teleport, yeah? Yeah. Now, what happens is, is obviously the fly gets in and, and, and means that the DNA gets mixed together. 
and then the ridiculousness of him transforming into a fly exposes a kind of ego which is he's he feels like he's growing into this kind of perfect beast isn't he that's the way he'd be if i remember rightly and which which obviously defies sort of human logic um he becomes this kind of i mean i guess a fly is just literally you know the fly will come and eat all the shit that we leave behind and and just and sick it out and then re- and then eat it again and so it's sort of like this perfect i think in i think given it was 1986 i think it's impossible to see it without the aids um metaphor over the top of it although when i watched it in the 80s i didn't see that because i was kind of too daft and young to notice but I've never thought about it as an age, as an anti-aging film, so that's interesting. Now you've said it, I mean, I, I can see it. It's not like I can't. It's not like I'm, I'm denying that it's not there. But yeah, it's interesting. And and something about as you get older, you know, you do think about getting old and dying, and you know, you get up off a chair and you make old person noise. Oh, you know, it's it's all these things you start to notice. You know, getting close to fifty, you, you know, your body is starting to what's the word? Um, Starting to just age and not be as good as it was, and I think as Billy Connolly said, "What do you want me to do at your age, not your shoe size?" And he sort of said, joking, he says, "What do you want me to do? Decompose." It all serious aside, that all joking aside, we are we literally are doing that. Our body replaces cells, doesn't it, at a rapid rate, and then at some point it can't keep up, and that's where the aging takes over the natural e- evolution of the body. And that's kind of like the fly, you know. He 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 desperately wants not to die. He desperately wants his body to stay together. And it's that whole thing of, you know, it's it's it, it was his obsessiveness obsessiveness that created this. It's the fact that you know he couldn't, you know, he he got in a teleport thing and he shouldn't have, but he was obsessive about trying to go further in life. And to, to to run before he can walk, and to achieve success before you know the, the right time. And when you rush all that, then suddenly you know he's falling apart because of that. And it's like he's doing what he can to to not decompose and get worse. So it's kind of like a mole in there. It's like just go slowly in life, enjoy your life. Everything comes at the right time, and then. You know, you sort of live your life and then you start to sort of decay and go bad. But he rushed everything and that's kind of what happened. Interestingly, then- interestingly Paul, there's, there's, there's a kind of, there's a, it's like there's like an opposite to, to the things you were playing with, peri- with peripheral in terms of AI as in computers being unable to replicate what human instinct is and fight or flight and stuff. Whereas the, the transformation for him from from human to human fly is that the fly element reduces him to his absolute base instincts. Eat shit, fat fuck. You know, that's it. He's the, he has no his cerebral capacity no longer matters. He he begins to just live completely for the moment. And also, you know, you've got those moments of. You know, like um, the, 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 was it the, they got, the, oh. Finish your thought. The Inside Out Monkey and the deleted scene of um, there was going to be a half cat, half monkey thing that they felt once that was so cool that he's done that, then instantly you would lose any kind of empathy for his character. 
You have to leave now. And never come back here. Have you ever heard of insect politics? Neither have I. Insects don't have politics. They're very brutal. We're going to move into um, one one of my personal favourites, um, made more favourite by the wonderful song Event Horizon. Have you, are you familiar with this? The song? Yeah. No. Right. Well, when you hear the edited version of this, you will hear a, a little insert of uh, of a band singing a song in in celebration of the film Event Horizon. It is the catchiest power pop tune you'll ever hear in your life. Okay. It, I, I experienced it for the first time at the Duke Mitchell Film Club segment of Fright Fest a few years ago, and it is an earworm that has never left me. So I'll be glad to pass it on to somebody else who's never heard it, but for now, tell me why you think Event Horizon is one of the five great sci-fi movies. Yeah, Event Horizon, I mean, it's, it's a classic haunted house story in space. Uh, and I am Paul Anderson's best movie by far. It's so dark, it's so gripping, it's so intense. It has everything, the claustrophobia, um, the well-thought-out characters, but also the, the whole concept of um, the event horizon going through space, you know, that, that wonderful scene where he folds that piece of paper and says, right, you go to this place, this place, and, and essentially they go to hell. And um, I just thought... It's, it's, it's almost a perfect science fiction horror movie. It, you know, it has a, a complete oppressive feel. You have people facing their most nightmarish um, fears, having to look into themselves, everything. And it's that whole thing of how do you torture a human, you know, without it being physical? And it is. It's you go back and you regress and you show them the bits that are most painful to them. And each one has that. And it's, I just thought, and also that the fact that the spaceship, again, it's one of those moments where horror is everywhere. Every minute of there, you, anything could happen, because there's not a monster. It's, it's the spaceship. And it's that whole sort of haunted house. But, you know, it, it, it was... It was so adult. It was so dark. It was just, you know, the Lawrence Fishburne character, everyone, Sean Purdy, the characters were so well written for that type of movie. And it's just one of those films that every time I watch it, it's genuinely creepy. It's genuinely kind of quite unnerving. And, you know, obviously there was um, 
when, when I, I had a lot of friends work on it, and they all worked on those infamous deleted scenes, which were really, when, I, when they were telling me about what they did, it was really nasty. It was a pure vision of hell. And that's a thing. I love any movie that is, is kind of that ballsy that will go into that sort of territory. But, you know, it was, like, it was one of those things where, you know, don't break the laws of physics. Don't break the actual laws because something's going to happen. You know, don't mess with Mother Nature. It's all those things. You found a way to travel, you know, to another dimension. That's not what humans are supposed to do. You do that, and they turn out to go to hell, essentially. And that's what, you know, I love. It's like a, you know, disaster movie, but of biblical proportions. I was going to say, there's, there's, there's a lot. That it's, the film says a lot about the arrogance of man, doesn't it? Because we are, we're explorers, and as we're beginning to see, um, as it bites a lot of the wealthier nations on the arse, uh, we're colonialists. You know, we want to colonize places, and we want to stamp our stamp our um, identity on it, um, and we do it fearlessly. You know, we we talk about fearless explorers and stuff, but actually. Event Horizon suggests it's none of our bleeding business. Absolutely. And it's one of those things where humans, like I said, almost like we're conquerors and we can do what we want. And we, and, and these guys, you know, they paid the ultimate price. Mm. And, you know, it, it was just one of those things where it, it was one of those films where you could really see characters falling apart. And it was... There's something nice about characters that fall apart, fall apart on their own. Emotionally, physically, they were falling apart. Nothing was actually being done to them in terms of physical, but they were having to, you know, look at their own, uh, what's the word? It, it, was, it, it was just one of those things where they, mirrors were held up to themselves and they were able to see the most darkest recesses of their own minds. Yeah, and I was going to say, the, the, the thing that's in, you know, everybody's, it's this idea that hell is a uniform place, whereas hell is, funny enough, goes back to what I was saying about subjectivity. In a way, what's what's hell for somebody is to do with a reflection of how good or bad they've been in their life, not not this idea of a venue you go to with a guy with a, tra- a, tra- a, a fork and his flames going around the place. Yes, absolutely. <coughs> well, you'd have heard Pig there, just reminding us that five minutes has elapsed, so thank you for giving us your uh, your thoughts on Event Horizon. She brought me back. I told you she won't let me leave. She won't let anyone leave. Did you really think you could destroy this ship? She's defied space and time. She's been to a place you couldn't possibly imagine. And now... Time to go back. I know. To hell. You know nothing. Hell is only a word. The reality is much, much worse. Let me show you. Before we started, I said to you that 
I was looking at it, I was going, oh, this is interesting. I don't think I've seen this one. And I looked, I was like, I went to the cinema to see this one. And it frightened me that... Um, that, that I could I could have seen a film and forgotten about its existence, but that's that's that doesn't make it a lesser or, or a worse film. It is a now I'm reminded of it. It's 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 a fantastic film. So let's talk about 2002's Equilibrium. Yeah, it's, it, it was one of those films that um, all that time eighteen years ago. Um, I was just walking up to the cinema. It was afternoon. It was raining. I thought, yes, I'm just going to watch a movie. And I went to cinema, looked at what was on. Equilibrium was the only had a cool poster. I thought, oh, this looks like some cool science fiction action thing. I went to watch it, and it was so much more. It was all about uh, the loss of uh, feeling, the loss of emotion. What would happen in a world if our emotions and our feelings were taken away? Their, their reasoning was then there'd be no war, there'd be no cruelty, there'd be no, uh, um, you wouldn't fall in love so you wouldn't uh, do a crime of passion. All your feelings are stripped, you'll just live life just day-to-day normal. And there's moments in that film, I mean, all the kick-ass action put aside, you know, there's moments of Christian Bale, and I think he was a huge part of making that movie work. And for, for absolute that, sure, yeah. Yeah, those moments like when he first listened to, um, was it Mozart or Beethoven? I can't remember, but he was listening to that. And you felt, oh my God, this is like a person that has not felt anything his whole life. And suddenly he's having that feeling of beautiful art, that, that feeling of understanding what it's really about being alive, what it's really about, and the things that are that make you happy in life, happiness, music, laughter, love. And to see someone experiencing that for the first time was really, like, kind of, you know, really powerful. And, and the moment where he has to watch the dog killed, and you could just see that in him, that simmering moment that you just cannot hold it in anymore and you know it, it was just such a you know such a great movie and it's one of these things you you understood why the society was doing what they were doing but and yes it had the result of what they wanted but it's it doesn't make it right and you know Christian Bale going off on one and you know I think he played it brilliantly and you know to boot you've got some amazing fight sequences but it was but but that whole idea of um feelings being illegal is obviously it's a great it's a great high concept to uh to to play within a movie because because obviously all all human instincts going to rebel against that notion absolutely and also you know to have the people that were happy to live poor underground you know and their um uh, contraband um was uh, old vinyl records of music and paintings and all this stuff and you think oh my god we take all that for granted but you know would you want to live a life in a very bland life you go you've got a nice little place you have a family you, you procreate and you go to work or would you rather be homeless and listening to 
Mozart and looking at paintings and reading the great works, it's it's a really interesting, what would you rather? I retweeted something today from at fact, fact, that's all the Twitter account is. People tend to develop an emotional bond with music because when people walk away, music is all that is left. I'm someone, you know, I love film, I love music. Um, there is, there is a great, you know, there's things that you can, you can, um, you can explore about emotions that music and art, all kinds of art, I suppose, is 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 about that because there's there's the visceral responses to stuff and there's the joy. Um, it's like uh, I remember the sort of writing about music and stuff, and you kind of you're just completely lost for words, and you can't just you can't just you, you can't sometimes can't describe it, and it's 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 a real frustrating thing. But it's uh, but also that 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 shows proves to me anyway how um, how intangible but also natural this 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 human love affair is with how we feel towards things like music like art and so on and so forth. For everyone that hasn't seen Equilibrium, because there's a huge amount of people that haven't seen it, go and watch it. It's it's a really good movie to have seen. The real father died years ago. The council simply elected me to pursue his paternal tradition. And you, Preston, the supposed saviour of the resistance, are now its destroyer. And along with them, you've given me yourself. Come. Good. Entirely without incident. recap then so your five great sci-fis are blade runner and the thing from 82 the fly from 86 um event horizon from 97 and equilibrium from 2002 so that's a fantastic choice so congratulations on being the first to nail some colors to what are the five great sci-fis i look forward to future guests telling me about five other films because um, this isn't about, I should have should have said at the outset, this isn't about saying these are the best because that's a, that's a, you know films not a competitive sport, but these are five really interesting films that are worth exploring. And talking of which, your new film Peripheral is out now. So do you want to tell people how they can see the film? Yeah, uh, so Peripheral is out on the third of August, and it's going to be available on Amazon, Google. Virgin, Sky, um, all of the usual paid streaming sites. Um, yeah, August 3rd, please watch. So what's your book about? That's a good question. Hello, Bobby. Um, my name's Sharon. You're just suffering from second book syndrome. Do you still use that old manual typewriter of yours? I thought computers were getting smaller. You know that technology is an addiction. Is this thing going to change my words? You just swap one drug for another. How do you like your new hardware? Where are you, Bobby? I think we could do great things together. You don't sleep well, Miss Johnson. Most writers don't. Your machine is censoring my work. We love what we've read so far. How would you know? Surveillance generation, Bobby. 
Most readers just want to be told a good story while they sip their hot cocoa. Why didn't you come to the door? Not your readers, of course. No, they, they want to be ignited. Bite the hand, bite the hand. I've got a new job for you. I don't do assignments. Finish the book, Bobby. Your words are out there now, carved into all of us. <laughs> No great writer ever looked at a blank page and turned away in fear. I'm not going to pay for it. Well, just gives me to say thank you very much for giving us your thoughts on the Britflix podcast. Wonderful. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure, Stuart. Absolute pleasure. Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.